Welcome to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. Whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus or are exploring what faith in Him might look like, we are glad you're here. It is our prayer that by listening to this message, you may better understand who God is, what He has done for you, and what that means for your life. May all of this lead to the worship of God and be for His glory. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is God's word. All of these things we hear about in this passage hang on that branch of peace that, that overarches this passage. And that is our theme this morning, is peace and what does it mean to have peace and that the Prince of Peace has come. And one of the most well-known prophetic passages of the coming Messiah is found in Isaiah chapter 9. And it says this, it says, for, to us a child is, uh, a, a, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and the Prince of Peace. His name will be the Prince of Peace. And why is that? And we want to focus our attention on this title of Prince of Peace Today, And one of the great passages that tells us what this peace will mean is the one that we have just read in Romans chapter 5. What is it that peace accomplishes? And Advent is the time where we anticipate the coming of Jesus, of course, and, and now that he has come in the form of a child at Bethlehem, we wait for his coming again. Advent traditionally focuses on four aspects of his coming. Last week we looked at the hope of his coming. This week we look at the peace that His coming brings. We also look at the joy of His coming and then the love of His coming in the following weeks. And so we will look at this piece from Romans chapter 5 this morning. And now, this is an interesting passage for a few reasons. And one is the fact that you actually view all three members of the Godhead. They are all referred to in these short five verses. So in the short compact, which is really kind of like a, a run-on sentence, we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all contained beautifully together here and they're functioning together as the Godhead. But also, even uh, in addition to that, really we see all four themes of Advent in this passage here as well. We have peace. We read about peace. We see hope that is contained within this passage mentioned. We see joy. It talks about rejoicing a couple of times. And then it ends off by talking about this love that the Holy Spirit is bringing. So we have all four themes of Advent contained within this passage, which I think is pretty cool. So we're going to take a look at it. So hopefully you have your Bibles open. And we want to look at this Prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace that we are waiting for. And we're going to notice this promised peace. What does peace produce and how does this peace sustain you? So let's start, first of all, by considering what is this peace. Now, you may remember about a month ago, we were going through the life of King Solomon, and we were at 1 Kings chapter 5. And we read those incredible verses that we kept coming back to that said, but now 
The Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And we saw how this was an incredible time in Israel's history, but that it wouldn't last for long. They had rest on every side. They had perfect peace. There were no adversaries. There was no misfortune. It sounds like this place that we want to dwell within. The other thing we saw was that Solomon's name in Hebrew actually is Shalemo, and it refers and sounds exactly like the word shalom and means peaceful. And we talked about that as we went through it. Solomon's very name. Solomon would be the king who would reign in a time of peace. But we know that that peace didn't last. Solomon was pointing to the true king who would come and whose name would not just be peaceful, but whose name would be the Prince of Peace, as Isaiah chapter 9 tells us. This true king would establish his throne and he would give his people an abiding peace in the midst of their refugee wanderings on earth and an eternal peace in the life that is to come. Now, most of what we know about an experience of peace is temporary. You know, the best of what we can really hope for is a peace that will last long enough for us to sort of get recharged and to be able to sustain us until we get to that next thing that's going to hit us and that we'll be able to have enough reserves on hand to be able to handle that next thing. We look forward to these times and these moments where we experience peace. I remember that feeling when the kids were babies and we were trying to get them to sleep. And sometimes, you know, it had been a really hectic day. You know, you get home from work, you get supper on, you get everyone fed, you clean up, you play for a while, and then it's time for night snacks or nursing, whatever's happening. And then it's bath time and into the pajamas. And then if all goes well, you sing and you pray. And you hold them in your arms and you, you gently lay them down in their crib. It's been a long day and you're tired. You remember that moment? You remember that anxiety that you felt in that what you might call the great transfer? <laughs> and that was like the most skilled move that you could ever master, the transfer. I mean, you had that cringing look of concentration on your faces as you had laid over top of their bed, you leaned over the bed trying to be as smooth as possible and gently sliding your arms out from underneath them not to get them to rouse. Like, that should be like an Olympic sport, I think. That would be amazing. You had all these babies, and like, who could, who could put the most babies to bed without having them wake up? And you know, some kids are obviously harder to do this with than others. I'll just say that. But then you just, you tiptoe out of the room, and it's still not over, right? Because you have to open up that door and you have to get that door closed behind you without it making a loud creaking sound and try to turn that handle so that it doesn't make any kind of a sound and you just slowly kind of like walk out. Hopefully you don't have any creaky floors or like, you know, pieces of wood on your floor that are going to creak and wake them up again. And when that happens and you walk away, like that's a great feeling. Like you just feel like you've accomplished something magnificent. Like you're like, the night is mine now. Like I got two hours just to do whatever I want. You have that moment of perfect peace, you know? The house is silent. But you know it's not perfect peace, right? Because you know it's not going to last. It could be 10 minutes. It could be two hours. But it will get broken. Because it is inevitable the peace will be broken. And I say that in jest, of course, because obviously those hours you spend with your kids are precious, uh, even if they are in the middle of the night. But I think you'll know what I mean about that feeling of peace when all is silent, the kids are asleep. It's a temporary feeling. 
And temporary peace is actually most of what we experience. You know, we have, we have periods of peace in our life, but there's no guarantee that they're going to last. And in Isaiah chapter 9, the people, they were under God's discipline. And when they hear of this king who is coming, who is going to be the prince of peace, who will provide us with a peace like we have never known. And then Paul expounds upon this, and he talks about what the effects of this coming peace are going to be in the lives of his followers. And so in the first four books of Romans, Paul has just laid this massive foundation of the justification by faith in God. We are justified through faith. And this was such a radical concept that it really needed to be explained. And so Paul does that for four chapters. Now, all the other religions, they had a basis of acceptance upon how you lived. You know, how good you were and how well you obeyed the commands and the obligations of your religion. But Christianity was unique in that we are declared justified as a free gift through faith. You know, Paul really needed to talk about that a long time because that's going to be a hard concept to sort of sink in. But once you get that, once you have that, you begin living as you should be living. When you understand your justification by faith, it changes you. You begin living in that way. It, be, it really becomes a delight to do so. It's not an obligation, but a delight to live your life in the way that pleases God. And so the way that Paul refers to the state of being justified he says it is peace with God. Because all of these things we have laid as this foundation, you have peace with God. When you've been declared justified through the works of Jesus Christ on your behalf, you have this. And one of the characteristics of this peace is that it never runs out. We don't have to wait for a while and then wait for the other shoe to drop. It's a lasting peace. We have it now and we will enjoy it for all eternity. But this begs the question of why we can have this. And verse 2 speaks through this. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace into which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Why can we be at peace? Because the hostility that used to exist between us and God is now over. It's an objective reality and it's not dependent upon your feelings. It's something that has happened in the life of the believer in Jesus Christ. You have it. You either have it or you don't. And if you've repented of your sins, and if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then you have it. You see, the thing is, whenever we sin, we are saying that we have authority over that area of our lives that we are sinning in. We're saying, I have authority over this. I will do what I want in this area. But God also claims authority over those same things. And so when God is claiming authority over something that we're saying we have authority over, then what happens? Well, you find yourselves at war. And so salvation, what it is then, it's a putting an end to that way of, by saying, God, I recognize that it is not I who have authority over my life or over these things, but it is you. I don't have the authority, you do. Forgive me for thinking and acting like I did, like it was me that had the authority. I need forgiveness for that. But the second part of this is that God's anger is not like our, ours is. It's not vindictive. It's not vengeful. It's legal. That means that there is a sentence on us that can't just be discarded. Because we've gone our own way, because we have disobeyed and rebelled, something must be done. It's a legal state that we're in, and we can't just throw that out. Something has to happen. The debt can't be washed away. Like we said last week, somebody, someone has to pay for forgiveness in order for it to be established. Someone always has to pay when forgiveness is given. 
Either you pay or the other person pays. Remember, we talked about that. And, where, and that's where Jesus comes in in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And he says that we are justified by faith and we have peace with God all because of Jesus. It happens through Jesus. Now you are at peace. This is faith in God. Have you ever experienced reconciliation with someone before? If you've ever walked that road, like maybe you had a big row with someone, maybe it was your spouse or maybe it was your friend, but then you offered forgiveness to each other and you became fully reconciled once again. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever walked that road? Do you remember that feeling? Like it is truly one of the best feelings ever. When there used to be hostility, there was angst with you and someone, but then that was healed and forgiveness had been granted and now you can walk in a reconciled relationship. It's one of the greatest experiences that you will have. And that's what you now have with God through Jesus. That is a true and a lasting peace that Paul is setting forth in this chapter. And it can never be taken away from you. When you experience this, it's yours. And it produces something as well. It has a wonderful production. What is it that it produces? That's where Paul turns next in verses 3 to 4. The reality of being at peace with God, it causes rejoicing in what he says in at least three ways. So it causes rejoicing. There's a joy that comes. First of all, there is a joy and hope. You see, verse 2 tells us that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When we experience that justification, that faith in God, there is a joy in our salvation. The New Testament authors tell us that we can rejoice and boast in the fact that we are saved. This is something to truly boast in. Being at peace with God, it fills our heart with gratitude and thanksgiving. It causes us to rejoice. We can ultimately be at rest in any situation because we know that the big picture of our life is secure. The big picture is secure, and so now even in the minutia, the small details, we can rejoice. You know, in Jesus, I don't know if you remember this, in, in Jesus' ministry, he sends out 72 disciples in Luke chapter 10. And they go out and they do all these amazing things. They're healing, they're casting out demons, wild things are happening, which they tell Jesus about. They come back and they tell Jesus what had happened. And Jesus' response is, like, these guys are super excited. They can't believe what happened in their ministry. And what is Jesus' response to that? He says, well, that's great. But do you know what's even greater, he says? Do you know what should give you an even greater joy? He says that your names are written in the book of life. The greatest joy that you can have that Jesus says to them is that your name is written in the book of life, that you are at peace with God. That is even greater than all of these miracles and, and healings and the casting out of demons that they have done, but that their names are written in the book of life is the greatest, Jesus says. Jesus says that the greatest joy that there is and the thing that we should be boasting and celebrating in is that. Because when that's right, when you know your name is written, everything else falls into place and it gives perfect perspective on every other situation that you will come across, which is where Paul turns to next even in suffering. He says rejoice in hope of the glory of God, but even more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Peace with God enables you to even rejoice in suffering. And what Paul is saying here, what kind of peace that was promised in this coming Messiah, 
was going to be an ability to have joy that would remain even in the midst of suffering. The joy doesn't leave just because suffering enters your world. Now, this doesn't, of course, mean that there is joy in your suffering, because obviously God hates the trouble and the pain that we experience in this life, and so should we, but we know that suffering will actually have a beneficial result. Suffering can produce something. You see, we're not just Stoics who just endure suffering by clenching our teeth and say, we just got to get through this. But what we are able to do is that we're actually able to look through suffering. Suffering is before us, but it's something that we can look through. We see suffering in front of us, but we, but we look all the way through it until the end. And we have that perspective because of Jesus. Our suffering is not like a solid wall that stands in front of us. But yeah, I was actually, I was sitting in my office this week and I was looking at this thing that's sit, been sitting on my floor ever since Pastor Bob was here. It's this, this glass. I kind of thought, it's a little bit like this, I don't even know what these things are called, but you know, you usually put them in a shower or like some kind of a window. But it's like this idea that you can sort of see through it. Like I can't see who you are. I, I know there's people there. I can't see who you are and it's kind of blurred, but I can see through it. And I know that there's something on the other side. And it's not clear, and I don't exactly know what that's going to be like when I look through that other side, but I know that it's there. And this is kind of like what suffering is like in our life for the believer in Jesus Christ. We know that there is something on the other side. We may not get all the details of that picture, but it's not like just a blank wall that's standing there that blocks everything else out so that hope no longer exists. So that even in the midst of our suffering and our trials and our difficulty, we can see through it to God's eternal purpose, that there is something waiting on the other side and that none of this will be wasted. Now, this means that troubles and suffering will only and can only produce something good within you. And Paul gives three positive results of our suffering in this passage. He actually talks about them and explains them. Suffering produces this step-by-step -step transformation in your life. Consider the hard things that you have gone through when it comes to this. First of all, he said suffering leads to endurance, and it's either like an endurance or a perseverance. It's a word that means single-mindedness, is what it produces in your life. Suffering make us, it makes us focus, it makes us hone in on what is really important. The superfluous kind of things in our life, they just sort of fade away and they fall by the wayside. And it makes us remember the things that are really lasting, and it refines our thinking and our perspective. We realign our priorities and we remove the distractions. Have you ever noticed that happen in your suffering? It gave you this ability to single-mindedly focus you on what was really important. Paul says this is what happens. And then that leads to something. That kind of endurance, it leads to character. And this is a word that means testedness. So when those priorities become realigned, like we said in the last point, and you actually do something about it, that produces in you what's called character. You followed through on what needed to be done, and it produced something. It made you into something. And this is why sports teams who are trying to make a push for a championship, they always try to get a few people on the team who have won it before. So you'll remember when the Jets came back, they made Andrew Ladd their captain, and they had Bufflin on the team. You know, guys who had been on Stanley Cup winning teams, that they'd be able to bring in this, they had this character that they could bring in this culture of winning. They knew what it would take. Now, you know, obviously it didn't work out very well. That It didn't exactly go as planned. You know, maybe that's not the best illustration to make, you know, for this. 
But that was the idea. This is what we wanted to happen, is that this character would produce something and that they would even rub off on others because it's different in Christ. Because in Christ now, when you go through something, you have been refined. You learn something and you have changed in the midst of it and through it, and that's character. And then Paul says that character leads to hope. Now, we talked about hope last week and how it wasn't just wishful thinking, but it was confidence. Like the way in which we talked about, I hoped for that box of Lego under my Christmas tree as a kid. Because I knew what it was. I'd seen it before, and so when I saw it there, that's what I hoped for for Christmas. I knew that's what it would be. You see, we have rival sources of hope in our lives all the time. And suffering removes those rival hopes that aren't really hopes at all and replaces them with true hope. The single-mindedness of endurance and the testedness of character, it leads to a confident hope. So somehow, only in God's way of doing things can he take suffering that comes into our life and as an end result, actually have it offer us hope. Suffering drives us to that one place that we find real hope, real confidence, real clarity, certainty. And that is God. Being at peace with God provides this. And this was the promised peace that was told to Israel in their time of suffering, that the Prince of Peace would come. Hold on. Wait. Be faithful. God is going to provide. The Prince of Peace will come. And I'm sure there are many of you here this morning that can relate to the experience that I read of this last week in Lloyd, Lloyd Ogilvie. And Ogilvie was a longtime pastor, and he was the chaplain for the U.S. Senate for many years. And he recalls the way in which his experience lines up perfectly with our, our Romans 5 passage. He says this, This past year has been the most difficult year of my life. My wife has been through five major surgeries, radiation, treatment, and chemotherapy. During the same year, I suffered the loss of several key staff teammates whose moves were very guided for them, but a source of pressure and uncertainty in my work. Problems which I could have tackled with gusto under normal circumstances seemed to loom in all directions. Discouragement lurked around every corner trying to capture my feelings. Prayer was no longer a contemplative luxury, but the only way to survive. My own intercessions were multiplied by the prayers of others. Friendships were deepened as I was forced to allow people to assure me with the words that I had preached for years. No day went by without a conversation, a letter, or a phone call giving me love and hope. The greatest discovery that I have made in the midst of all of the difficulties is that I can have joy when I don't feel like it. Artesian joy. I love that word, artesian joy. It is a different kind of a joy that we can have in the midst of what we walk through when we are at peace with God. Who knows what God is accomplishing in our suffering? See, there's a great refining that happens in our lives when we have the peace of God ruling in our hearts. And it's only through these trials that we find our moments of greatest growth and the deepening understanding of the love of God. Who knows what your current suffering could produce? In early 1900, the cotton crop was one of the largest economies in the southern United States. But a little pest that was called the bull weevil came north across the border from Mexico and it ravaged this cash crop. This little beetle that decimated cotton plants 
It cost the South $23 billion in losses since its arrival. Now, the havoc that the bull weevil wrought on the southern economy was so bad that many scholars argue that it was the main reason for the Great Migration in the United States. The Great Migration was the time it was a movement of six million African Americans from the South to the northern states in the early 1900s, potentially as a result of the bull weevil. Well, a few farmers in the region of Enterprise, Alabama, decided to try a different crop seeing as though you couldn't produce cotton with any effectiveness anymore. So they chose peanuts. Well, those peanut crops became so successful that the whole region turned over to peanuts and made way more than what they were making in the height of the cotton boom. It even became the first area to produce peanut oil. So this destructive little beetle that caused them so much loss, so much suffering, turned out to be the pathway to what ended up being their greatest Prosperity. So, if you go to Enterprise, Alabama today, they are so grateful for that little destructive bug that has destroyed their economy for a time that they built a monument in 1919 to the bull weevil and a giant statue of a Greek woman holding one up above her head. So, that is how much they appreciated their suffering. <laughs> kind of hilarious. What will God accomplish in the midst of our suffering. We don't know. Like that glass that we look through, that we, we know there's something on the other side, we can't maybe make out exactly what it is, but we know that God is accomplishing His purposes in His way, in some way, even in the midst of great suffering. Well, then how is it that this peace with God sustains us? Well, it's a beautiful thing to experience God's peace and grace to the extent that you can actually rejoice in suffering as well as hope in the glory of God. But how do we know that this joy will last, and how do we know that we even have it? Well, the answer is that these great benefits are grounded. They're grounded in God's abounding love. Verse 5 tells us this, that God's love has been poured into our hearts in verse 5. It's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. The idea in the Greek is that God's love has been and continues to be poured out within our hearts. It's like a fountain that never dries up. The love of God pouring into us through His Holy Spirit. Our hearts have been filled to overflowing with the love of God poured into us as the movement and that right at the moment of our salvation by the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 2, you know, we read about the shepherds who were in the same region with Jesus where he was born to Mary and Joseph. And they were watching over their flocks, we are told, in the dark, and suddenly in the sky is this angel of the Lord. And I mean, you can imagine what must have been going through their minds. They were terrified. But the angel said, as you know, fear not. Don't fear. We're bringing good news of great joy. Your Savior has come, and now go and find him. And at that, thousands of angels suddenly appear, and they began singing and praising and glorifying God, and this is what they say, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. The announcing of the coming of peace. The Prince of Peace had come. The Prince of Peace was here. The King that Solomon was just a shadow of had now come in Jesus Christ. The Prince that Isaiah foretold would come now had arrived. And this Prince of Peace would pour out through His Holy Spirit, 
the love of God into the hearts of all who would come to him in repentance and in faith. And that would result in a seal of peace on our lives. It wasn't just a general peace that the angels were announcing in Luke chapter 2. It was a peace for all who God would be at peace with. The war would be over for those. Perfect peace that results in the joy of our salvation and a joy even in the midst of suffering. This is why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And this is what that peace that he brings provides for us. Do you know this peace? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the way in which your peace was, it was promised, it was foretold, and it was even shadowed at many times. And so, Father, we thank you that that hope was always before your people, sustaining them, and when your peace came, it was announced. And so, God, I thank you that we can experience this even now. And I pray that the peace with God that we would have, that our passage talks about, would result in all of these things that even in the midst of suffering, that a hope would be produced in our lives. We can have this when we are at peace with you. And so we thank you that through Jesus Christ and through his death and through his resurrection, we can have peace with you, that that war can be over. And so, God, I pray that we would come to you in humility and we would recognize that we do not have that ultimate authority over our lives and the things that we do, but we give that to you. Lord, you are the one who has authority over us. And when we recognize that, Lord, we just we repent of our own holding on to our lives, not surrendering ourselves to you. And so we ask for your forgiveness in that and that you would come and that you would heal us. And as we come to you in faith, that this peace would wash over us. And it would be a peace that would be even seen by those who are around us. That, Lord, even here together as a people, that we would be a people of peace and where our community would see that, they would be drawn to it, that they would see there's something different about these people, that there's a peace here that doesn't exist elsewhere, Lord. And it is a perfect peace that comes from your hand. And so we thank you that we can enjoy this and celebrate it, recognize it, worship you in light of it even now. But we know that we will experience it in its fullness in the life that is to come. And Lord, may this cause us to be able to hold on tightly to be faithful in the midst of, of trials and of persecutions and of suffering for your glory, Lord. You have given us the ability to do it through the Holy Spirit that has poured out your love into our hearts. We thank you for that today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, thanks for listening in to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. If you would like more information about what we do and why we do it, please check out our website at nestbaptist.com where you will find links to all of our ministries, weekly updates, contact information for our staff, and a button to donate. Your donations go to making resources like this possible and helps us in many other ways in reaching our surrounding community with the good news of Jesus Christ. So thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon.